Hello, everybody, and welcome back to this week's Guardian Mindset Podcast. I'm attorney Eric Daigle, and I'd like to welcome you to this session. Today, we're going to talk just briefly on a very important subject for law enforcement, and that's use of force. And as you know, I start with a quote. And so the quote for this one, I had to go back to Theodore Roosevelt. Speak softly and carry a big stick. You will go far. The key to this is we're going to talk about use of force and the issues associated with use of force. And one of the reasons why is because I'm fielding a lot of calls. As you know, we do a lot of use of force work, a lot of training. We have our use of force summit coming up in in December uh, of 2021. We host it every year. It's our 10th year anniversary. We're really excited. One, I think, is just excited to see everybody. Uh, it's been so long that we've all been stuck between uh, behind Zoom lenses. To actually be able to shake hands is going to be a good thing. Um, but in the world of use of force, uh, I do a lot of use of force reviews and audits and uh, a lot of use of force training. So a lot of you um, contact us many times to have discussions about, hey, Eric, what's the status of use of force? I'm really concerned. Uh, oh, should I still be a police officer? And I've even heard things as dramatic as people are actually leaving the job because of the use of force reform issues across the country. Now, if you're new to this podcast or you're not from law enforcement, one of the things you should know is that since 2019, we have had a lot of police reform issues across the country. And what that means is there has been legislative, uh, there have been legislative acts and statutes that are passed across the country. And give you a little perspective, uh, there's a map that we just put up, we just put together for our use of force summit which gives a picture of the country, as you can see. And what you're going to see is that, uh, so obviously we have 50 states, right? Uh, make sure everybody has a little bit of history lessons. So we're still on board with 50 states, even though a few of them would like to leave, but we still have 50 states. Of those 50 states, there are only two states that are blue that have no legislation in them. Believe it or not, that's Idaho and North Dakota, no police reform legislation. Um, of the 50 states, there are seven that are red, and the red states um, are the ones that voted down legislation, where that legislation uh, on use of force and different topics was was identified, and it was voted down. So states like that, as you see, are Montana, Wyoming, South Dakota, Missouri, Mississippi, West Virginia, and Florida. No shocker there for those states. Um, very, very red states in that regard. Then you're going to look at the the green states and the green states make up most of the country. There's 30 states in this country that have, have passed some part of use of force statute or reform. And there are a handful left, there are yellow states um, where they're still pending legislation. So that makes up our 50 states. Two with no, seven voted it down, 11 with pending legislation, and 30. Uh, with past legislations built, which brings use of force into uh, into question and legislation. Often we've seen legislation about bystander liability. We've seen legislation about chokeholds, and then the worst part is the legislation that seems to go into um, taking away from Graham versus Connor or Tennessee versus Garner legislation that imposes standards on de-escalation or legislation that imposes. Um, uh, what I believe to be uh, unattainable standards, like before you use force, make sure you alleviate all necessary opportunities. Well, what, what does that mean? I don't understand what that means. Up to June of this year, there's a lot of, been, a lot of instability in the way that legislation has caused uh, issues across the country with these use of force standards. Now, understand one thing. 
for the guardian mindset, for those, those of you working in the job, nothing has changed. And please let me tell you again, nothing has changed. We are governed by the 1989 Supreme Court case, Graham versus Connor, uh, for non-deadly force application. And you all know that Graham versus Connor is has three-part tests, the severity of the crime, the threat to the officer or others, and whether the subject is actively resisting or attempting to evade arrest by flight. Uh, our deadly force standards were Tennessee versus Garner, imminent threat of serious physical harm or death. And this is Supreme Court law. And what has really been interesting to me as I watched across the country for the past, uh, you know, the past year and a half for two years when legislation came through is how the legislatures just truly threw away the the law. And part of me was saying, well, God, that can't, that just can't be that easy, right? It just can't, it just can't be that easy to throw away the law and not have the proper guidance. And I think one of the reasons for that is for all of you that are in a law enforcement agency, some of you may be, you know, trainers or commanders. We've spent decades trying to figure out how to best utilize the law of Graham versus Connor or Tennessee versus Garner. We've got uh, jurisprudence, uh, which means legal history through all the 12 circuit court of appeals. Um, there's just a lot to the guiding standards. And, and it, it, it's kind of painful to me when I listen to people who just say, well, you know what, Eric is, is, you know, we just, you guys just go out there and do whatever you want to do. And I said, that is not true. That's, we have uh, intense thresholds of legal precedent that guide what every little word means. What is the severity of the crime? What is a threat? What is active resistance? Uh, all of these things have been litigated and the standards are very structured. We call it clearly established law. And we have then been passing that on to you. I will be uh, totally honest with you to say that one of the biggest issues that I've seen is that um, I've said to legislatures all across the country, I said, hey, um, how am I supposed to train this? Like, one, we've been training officers their whole career on Graham versus Connor and Tennessee versus Garner. What's going to happen? Like, how do I undo that training? It's kind of like a, a puppy. You train a dog on how to do things. And then somebody says, well, we're going to change it. You know, there's a reason why there's a saying that says you can't teach old dogs new tricks because once they get used to doing something a certain way, it's really, really difficult to change the physiological application of that decision-making. So as all the legislation went through, I would continually remind people, hey, don't forget that there's three branches of government in this country, right? That, that when our forefathers sat down to make our constitution that still guides us today, one of the key components of that constitution was that we wanted to get rid of tyranny, right? We wanted to get rid of a king. We didn't want a king anymore. And if you read any of the history of Thomas Jefferson in the writing of the Bill of, uh, Bill of Rights, one of the things that will be very clear to you is it was very important to Thomas Jefferson and others, the signers of the constitution, that not one entity have all the power. So the problem with the system that we live in is that legislative, executive branch, and judicial branch. Well, let's start with the legislative branch. Have we heard from the legislative branch on use of force? Well, yeah, of course we did. We've heard, uh, you know, as I said, 30 states have passed some form of police reform application. And, and that's, 
And that's pretty damaging. So, well, have we heard from the executive branch? Well, yes, because in order for the executive branch to the law to get passed, obviously the governors have to sign it, right? So we have legislatures who have provided new law. We have governors who have signed new laws. So who haven't we heard from? And and that's really the most important thing for your guardian mindset is that there's still more to the story. And I want to give you a, this is our first attempt to give you a glimpse into some reality. And that's the best part of this, being able to tell you about this is that for, you know, for all of 2020 and 2021, I just kept saying, it's going to get better. It'll be fine. Everybody just relax. We'll get there. And the key part is what happened on June 28th, 2021. So as you know, the Supreme Court ends its session every year at the end of June. And right before the Supreme Court ended its session in uh, 2021, they did something that I believe is a glimmer of hope for the future. The fact that use of force law is still precedent, that Graham versus Connor and Tennessee versus Garner are still precedent. And the Supreme Court, the way I like to look at this is I, I think the Supreme Court threw a shot across the bow. They said, listen, um, none of you are paying attention to the Supreme Court. None of you are paying attention to the law. So on June 28, 2021, the Supreme Court of the United States examined the topic of excessive force in a case called Lombardo versus the city of St. Louis. What is important about this is that it was actually not a signed opinion. It was actually an opinion paper written by the justices when they did not need to write an opinion paper. So the question is, why do you think they wrote an opinion paper on the topic of use of force before the end of the 2021 session, before they actually had to write a paper? And I'm hoping you're going to come to the same conclusion I am, which is the reason they did that was that they wanted to throw a little bit of hope back into the world. So in an unsigned opinion, and over the dissent of three justices, the United States Supreme Court threw out an Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals ruling in favor of officers which dismissed the excessive force suit filed by the man's parents and sent it back down to the lower court for another look. Now, I'm going to go over some key parts of the facts and the decision. And if you really want to keep up to date with this, I hope all of you are listening are signed up for our weekly legal updates. And if not, please go to dlglearningcenter.com and you can go to the article section and you can actually get the article from Lombardo versus City of St. Louis that was posted on our site on July 6th, 2021. And more importantly, then we want you to go to dagolawgroup.com and put your email address in the, uh, in the uh, newsletter section, which is on the bottom of the page, and you'll get all these updates as they come in. Because I really, really think that 2021 into 2022 is going to be a very active year because I don't think the Supreme Court's happy. Now, let's just be realistic. The Supreme Court's not happy because they want to defend law enforcement. In my opinion, the Supreme Court's not happy because people are trying to make a mockery out of the law that governs this country, and they have no patience for that. And I would expect that they wouldn't. I, expect, I, would, I would hope that they wouldn't. So what do we know about this case? Well, let me give you a review of the facts because this is the most important. So in 
Lombardo versus the city of St. Louis, an excessive force lawsuit. This lawsuit arose from a 2015 death of a gentleman by the name of Nicholas Gilbert. Nicholas is a homeless man who was arrested for trespassing and were failing to appear in court in a traffic ticket. So Mr. Gilbert is arrested, and while in a holding cell, Mr. Gilbert attempts to hang himself. Three officers responded and entered Mr. Gilbert's cell. One grabbed Gilbert's wrist to handcuff him, and Gilbert evaded the officer and began to struggle. Three officers brought Gilbert, who, just for knowledge, is five foot three and 160, put 160 pounds. They brought him down to a kneeling position over a concrete bench in a cell. They handcuffed his arms behind his back. Gilbert reared back, kicked the officers, hitting his head on the bench. After Gilbert kicked one of the officers in the groin, they called for more help and leg shackles. While Gilbert continued to struggle, two officers shackled his legs together, and then, as you would expect, emergency medical service personnel were phoned for assistance. Several more officers responded to the area. They relieved the two officers of the original three officers, which we're now leaving, if you're following along in math, that now means that there's six officers in the cell with Gilbert. Gilbert is now handcuffed and in leg irons. They move Gilbert down to the prone position, face down on the floor. Three officers held Gilbert's limbs down on his shoulders, biceps, and legs. At least one other placed pressure on Gilbert's torso and his back. Gilbert tried to raise his chest, saying, it hurts, stop. After 15 minutes of struggling in this position, Gilbert's breathing became abnormal and he stopped moving. The officers rolled Gilbert onto his side and then his back to check for a pulse. Finding none, they performed chest compressions and rescue breathing. An ambulance eventually transported Gilbert to the hospital where he was pronounced dead. I gotta tell you, maybe I'm just reading too much into this, but it seems really weird and odd that the Supreme Court would pick a fact pattern that's very similar to the death of George Floyd, a positional asphyxia, a weight on the back of the individual, uh, the individual resisting. And it makes me wonder whether they chose this case on purpose. Now, here's what we do know. Well, there was a death, so as you would expect, Gilbert's parents sued the city and the officers, alleging, among other things, that the officers had used excessive force against Gilbert in violation of his constitutional rights. The United States uh, Court of Appeals for the Eighth Circuit dismissed the claims. They said that no reasonable jury could find that officers had used excessive force and therefore the officers could not be held liable. So this case goes on a writ of certiorari, which just means a request to the Supreme Court to look at it. And on June 28th, much to our surprise, the court issued a four-page decision in which it emphasized that the determination of whether police officers use excessive force requires careful attention to the facts and circumstances of each particular case. My God, if I can only say that sentence many, many times, we know that use of force is fact-based, that what makes force reasonable is facts. And when we talk about training and documentation and force analysis and force investigation, what we're talking about is a clear determination of facts. Remember, facts make force reasonable. 
And this this case does nothing but enlightens us on the fact that facts make force reasonable. So the court said, including factors, when we're looking at facts, we should be looking at factors such as this, the relationship between the need for the use of force and the amount of force used, and the threat reasonably perceived by the officer, as well as whether the plaintiff was actively resisting. All right, now, those three care points, as a use of force instructor, I have to stop for a second, and I have to go over those and make sure that I highlight those to you because they're very, very important in our use of force training, analysis, and documentation. So number one, the relationship between the need for the use of force and the amount of force used, which, will, which we will actually interpret as, why did you need to use that level of force? Why did you use that level of force? And was that force in direct relationship to the need for the use of force? So in this case here, obviously, as they'll look at with Gilbert was struggling and kicking and, and, and therefore was restraining him reasonable as to meet the amount of force, uh, to meet the need for the amount of force used. And number two, the threat re reasonably perceived by the officer. Can't get any better for me here. Threat analysis. You know, what was the subject's ability to harm the officers? What was the subject's opportunity to harm the officers? And what was the subject's intent to harm the officers? What was the threat received? And when we look at threat analysis, we do so by looking at ability, opportunity, and intent. And finally, whether the plaintiff is actively resisting, the difference between passive resistance and active resistance. And we know from, from hundreds, almost a thousand court of appeals cases on the use of electronic control weapon across the country that active resistance has to be articulated in both our policy and our decision-making. So the court said, although the Eighth Circuit cited these factors, the Supreme Court noted that it's unclear whether the court thought the use of a prone restraint, no matter the kind, intensity, duration, or surrounding circumstances, is per se constitutional, so long as an individual appears to resist officers' efforts to subdue him. Moreover, the justices added, the Court of Appeals described others' facts, such as the fact that Gilbert had already been handcuffed and his legs were shackled as insignificant, when they actually could have been important. The Supreme Court further noted that there was evidence in the record that, quote, officers placed pressure on Gilbert's back, even though St. Louis instructs its officers that pressing down on the back of a prone subject can, soft, can cause suffocation, end quote. And well-known police guidance recommends that officers get a subject off his stomach as soon as he is handcuffed because of that risk. Such guidance further indicates that the suspect may be struggling due to oxygen deficiency rather than disobedience. Because the Eighth Circuit either failed to analyze such evidence or characterized that evidence as insignificant, the Supreme Court concluded that it had not conducted the kind of, quote, careful, context-specific analysis required by this court's excessive force precedent. The justices stressed that they were not weighing in on whether the officers that had in fact used excessive force or whether if they did, the officers would ultimately be entitled to qualified immunity. Instead, they wrote that they were simply giving the Eighth Circuit the opportunity to employ an inquiry that clearly attends to the facts 
and circumstances in answering those questions in the first instance. Judge Alito dissented, and he was joined in that dissent by Justice Thomas and Justice Gorsuch. In Justice Alito's view, he said, the Eighth Circuit applied the correct legal standard and made a judgment call on a sensitive question. Judge Alito suggested that the court, unfortunately, is unwilling to face up to the choice between denying the petition and bearing the criticism that would inevitably elicit or granting plenary review and doing the work that that would entail. So, as you can see, this is a case that structures our ability to tell you that facts still matter, that the Supreme Court still applies the facts to the case, and that just because a subject has is in a prone position or just because an officer may be kneeling on the subject's back, um, what we're going to look at is what was the training of the department, what was the operation, what was the need for that use of force. And here's my takeaway from this case as you think about this as we go forward. The Supreme Court made it clear in an unsigned opinion that excessive force cases are fact and circumstances specific, which require a thorough examination by the lower courts. Additionally, it is of utmost importance for every police department to make sure you have a sound use of force policy, one that definitely handles dealing with the issues such as necessity and threat assessment and report requirements and ensuring that we're, the department officers are following the policy and training of the department. It is utmost important for not only departments to have a good use of force policy, but to be update on best police practices to protect the department and the officers from potential litigation down the road. So what's my final thoughts here? Well, let me leave it to you this way. I think that all the legislation that has come out has caused instability in the region. In fact, I have been very vocal to legislatures across the country when I told them, I believe that America is less safe today than it was two years ago. And it's not because there is more violence. It's because officers do not feel confident in making decisions that will be scrutinized and analyzed later. We as a country need officers to be confident. We need officers to know when to use force, when to take someone into custody, when and how to ensure that there is not a constitutional deprivation. The importance in my arena is that together we must build the confidence for the officers. They are the ones that are making the difficult decisions. And, and remember, as the Supreme Court said in Graham versus Connor, in times that are tense, uncertain, and rapidly evolving. And also remember, as the Supreme Court said in Graham versus Connor, not every shove and push that may later seem unreasonable in the peace of the judge's chamber violates the Fourth Amendment. So for officers, while there is instability with the application of new reform legislation across the country, I strongly encourage you to stay focused on your policies and training that follow Graham versus Connor and Tennessee versus Garner. And remember, facts make force reasonable. Document the why. The why makes the what effective. Make sure you do your good report and articulate your decision-making for you to be able to defend your actions and your decision-making later on. All right, with that, I'll bid you a farewell. 
and leave you as I always do. Help those who need your help, protect those who need your protection, and most importantly, keep yourself and others safe. Thank you.